Hey, grab a seat. Make yourselves comfortable. My name is Luke. It's good to have you here. Um, we, as a church, we talk about as the center part of the city as often as we can, and obviously something, if you've been watching the news at all, has happened in what we call Central City in this last week, and it's kind of sad news, so bear with me, um, but a young Juwan Latham was shot about six or seven days ago at the end of a basketball game close to South Mechanicsville, I guess, um, at Danny Mayfield Park, which is really only two miles away from here, and about a mile from where we're headed. So it fits firmly within that demographic that we've been hoping for and praying for. He is, I guess, a victim of a disagreement between three local gangs. If you notice, gang activity is spiking. It's not decreasing. We're looking a little bit more like Chicago and Detroit as of lately. That's two gang shootings um, in the last four months where people under the age of 15 have died. And in a tragic irony, this guy was related to Xavier Dobson, who was shot and killed four months ago. As I was watching the news releases on this, one pastor, a local pastor in that area, said this. We have to do something, but we just don't know what to do, right? We have to do something, but we don't know what to do. And listen, this pastor's not alone, obviously. I mean, we do the best we can as society, and pastors just kind of jump on in to doing whatever the society's doing because no one knows what to do. So it looks like a lot of rallies, a lot of T-shirts made, a lot of task committees formed, the neighborhood watches and summer programs. That's basically the only thing that humanity knows to do in this. Like, you can committee gang activity down. And you can't. You can't do that. We've talked about that up here in the past, and we will in the future as well. Those things are good, and they have a place, but they are not a cure. They're not a cure for gang activity. Yes, we have to do something. I agree. I think something needs to be done, but I think that something happens by the person of Jesus Christ. I do think that the gospel and Jesus Christ, real in people's hearts, is the only thing that will abate and stiff-arm any kind of gang activity. I'm determined that that's what it is. I mean, when you look at a gang, and we'll talk about this a little bit more elaborately here in the, in the sermon, but when you look at a gang, it is a counterfeit type of church, or a counter-tip, or a counter-type, wait, counterfeit, <laughs> I can say the word, it's not, <laughs> it's not possible, a counterfeit type of fellowship. It's where people go to fit and to belong and to be a part of something much bigger than themselves. Jesus has provided this for us. The gospel provides a church environment where we can be known and deeply known and do life on life very tightly together, being vulnerable, belonging to something that is much bigger than ourselves. Gangs are just a runoff of something much bigger and much more important. So what I thought we would do is this morning is pray. And as I was looking at the reports again this morning and sketching some things down on some areas that we could pray for as a church, the first thing I think we could pray for is just that God awakens souls. God awakens souls, even within gangs. I think what would be important is to have churches. I think it is important, and I think all the pastors in that part of the city would agree, it's important for churches to be more invested in the community. Get that. We all get that. And that's been happening more and more. I think what needs to happen even more than that are people within the gangs becoming Christians. I would love to see, in fact, future pastors coming out of that farm system rather than the seminaries in order to reach those who are in gangs. That, that's what would excite me more. 
To have someone that used to be an enforcer or someone who used to drive a car where a shooting came from, something like that, God radically awakening their soul, then being quickened to change, and then developing a polemic or a gospel presentation for those that they used to run with. I'd like to see that happen more or at all. So I think we could pray for that. I think another thing that we can pray for is that churches do get invested and this is a little bit more difficult. It's, it's like being at an awkward middle school dance. You walk up and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do. You just know that there's this big hairy problem called gang activity. And as a pastor, you just, well, what do you do? I don't know, even know any gangsters. How do you get to meet a gangster? How do you do that? I mean, they're all over the place. The numbers are skyrocketing. They're not going down. How does a pastor do that? How does a church do that? So we should pray that God would give us some innovative and some very real wisdom on how to do that. And then thirdly, I'd love to pray that God would give us an opportunity to be a part of that. And I have no, and I mean no idea what that could look like. None at all. So maybe God could help us in this moment as we pray for the family of Jawan and even Zavian at this time. So just, let's just pray just for a second. Father, we thank you for just the awareness that is happening in Knoxville now around these deaths. I mean, it is a giant outcry, but that's what happens when 15-year-olds and 12-year-olds are shot. You will see an uproar. You will see these things. And I know Knoxville wants to stamp its foot and say, I'm sick of this. Something needs to change. But Father, without you, without you waking hearts, without you coming into that, that picture, nothing's going to change. We cannot out-police that part of town. You, you, we, we cannot keep up with the gang problem. Father, all we could really do is watch you do your work, watch you do your work, as we are as obedient as possible to that part of the city. So Father, I ask that you would waken hearts and quicken the future leaders of that part of town even within their ranks. Even right now, there might be remorse or regret or something rumbling around in someone, someone who is shot, someone who has been shot, someone who has run with, sold something, bought something. Lord, that there would be something in their heart that would cry out for something much deeper than what they've seen and but a part of. God, that you would change them from dead to alive and that they would grow to be vocal in the city, that they would grow to be vocal with their friends, with those that they used to be loyal to, that their loyalty to you is supreme above all of that. The churches would be planted. And Father, we pray that as churches get involved, that you would give us wisdom and insight on where to step and where to use our hands, where to leverage our money, where to leverage our time, what to say, who to say it to. It is so overwhelming that we don't even know where to start. We're just all all thumbs. So, Lord, we just pray that you would give us an ability to see clearly and be courageous to do it, to be courageous to do something a little bit risky, to be courageous to do something that's going to be a little bit costly. Father, you're so good to us as a church, and you've provided us a beautiful city, a beautiful city that we could love well. And every once in a while, we see a giant crack in this city, like we're looking at right now. Father, that you would help us. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, turn in your Bibles to John 1. If you have a Bible or an app that you're using, John 1. We're actually finishing the first chapter of John today. I'm excited about this passage. It's a super cool passage. And while you're turning there, I've been watching this documentary with my wife 
Um, and I came to a place in this documentary where I almost had to pause it and invent a little bit because I was so fascinated with what was occurring. There was a guy in this documentary that got life in prison. Life. He'd exhausted all of his appeals, no parole. So second to digging a tunnel out of that thing, he was breathing the last of his air in that institution, right? And as crazy as that is, and you don't see that super often, there's a woman in the outside world that developed a relationship with this guy. Started off with a letter here and a letter there, and what I guess started off platonic, if, if you could say that, developed into something a little bit more intimate. It, I guess if you could say that, because I don't know how intimate you can be with two inches of glass right there where you can't really do life with that person. You can just write back and forth, but she said, we're in love. I'm going to do the rest of my days with this guy, and he's saying the same thing, and I'm thinking in my mind, what is she doing? I mean, what is she doing? There's over seven billion people on earth right now, right? Certainly there are some eligible bachelors out there. Certainly there's got to be, but is she really going to pen pal her way through the next 40 years? That is crazy to me. I mean, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. That's bizarre. And my wife said something very wise. She said, that will show you the links that people will go to to be known. People want to be unknown. And she's right. In fact, I would say people are actually fearful and frightened of being alone. They don't want to be missed. They don't want to be disconnected from people. They want to be connected. They want their thoughts to be interpreted and to be considered by others. We all want this. It's everyone's fear to be alone, to be solo. It's actually called monophobia. I think we all have it to a certain degree, if we're honest with ourselves. This is why solitary confinement is such a big problem for people, right? A form of punishment, even within the penal system. Um, it is a situation where even the most shallow forms of human involvement are removed from you. No one comes out of that faring very well, right? I think we all have times where we wish we had a little solitary confinement, right? We're all like, hey, I'd take that for a few days. Well, what happens is, is people come out of that deranged to a certain point, God, listen, God was not kidding when he said, it is not good that man is alone. He wasn't playing when he said that before he creates woman, right? Now, this is not my commentary on solitary confinement or the penal system. I will say it's a biblical fact, though, that when we run solo our whole lives, it destroys us. I think it's important because for many of us in here, many of us out there, just many people in general, I think... We walk around, even though we're not in a cell, we're not in solitary confinement, we have a little bit of a solitary confinement we struggle with. People around us, people we do life with, people we work with, people we live next to, yet we still sit unknown, not considered, not thought of, right? Not having the, your deepest dreams and hopes interpreted or played out or known by somebody else, but just kind of an empty placeholder, another car on the interstate, Another, another office downtown. I mean, that's just the way many people feel. And technology has actually caught up with monophobia. The business world is not stupid. It's caught up with this. Have you noticed, have you noticed how mainstream online dating has become? Now, I'm 40 years old. I remember when online dating started, right? How many of you in here remember? If you're, if you're older than me or my age, you, you remember when online dating started, when it was brand new, right? 
it's a very different thing than it is now. Back then, no one really talked about it. If you were dating online, that was something you kind of kept in the can, right? Because that was for those who had an awkward social IQ that would probably never step into a bar or walk up to someone else. That was like a, not, like a notch higher or maybe right at Russian mail order catalog brides. It was right there. Very awkward, right? Now, not so much. The stigma is but all gone. If, if you did not meet your loved one online, you know someone that did. I was just at a wedding where it happened. You've probably been to a wedding where people met online. It's not, it's not a stigma anymore, right? In fact, in the last three years, the last 36 months, online dating has tripled between the ages of 18 and 24. Tripled. That's amazing. Some of you are thinking, that's not so amazing. That's when people date. This is what's amazing. It has doubled between the ages of 55 and 64. It's mainstream. I mean, when your mom's doing it, it's mainstream, right? It's mainstream. Why? Because people want to be known, being understood, being thought of. It's a basic need inside all of us. We have all these basic needs. Another one that we're going to see in today's text is the need to know that we can change. The need, the basic need to know that tomorrow could be a better version of today. To know that our past doesn't have to be our future, but our, our tomorrow can be totally different from yesterday. Take that away from people, and you're taking away a basic need. I mean, have you ever just sat around and thought? I've done this from time to time. I don't know why I do it. It's stupid. But if, if you ever just consider something you did maybe 10 years ago or five years ago or maybe five weeks ago where it was shameful, some shameful thing or some bad habit you had or some horrible moment, some embarrassing thing, whenever you ponder that, doesn't it, the cringe factor just kind of come right back up? You're like, oh, gosh. Ugh. Why? Because we're, we're embarrassed. You wouldn't want that to be your tomorrow. You, you're not even excited about that being your past. You want to put as much distance between you and that moment as possible. When I was an undergrad in college, I took some extra credit courses in psychology as a class because I wasn't doing so great in that class. And, and so there were, it was nothing weird in these experiments. One of them is, I really only remember one of them. I was a freshman. So what it was, was is they would show you a picture or give you a phrase, and you'd have to relay your immediate emotional response to it. This was the only one, out of that whole thing, this is the only one that I remember. Luke, they would personalize it. Luke, today is really the best day you will have for the rest of your life. The rest of your days just kind of go downhill. You might have some good days, but never like today. Your best days are behind you. Everything is just a slow slip towards death between now and the time you die. Now tell me how you feel. Right? Not that great. I mean, maybe an intense sadness of sorts. <laughs> Why? Because it's in all of us to want to do better tomorrow, to improve, evolve, succeed. You take that away from people, the hope, the dreams of doing so, and they're going to struggle. It's a basic need. Many people have the fear of change. All of us have the fear of not changing, I believe. Of course, there's no phobia named after that. I think, in fact, it's where Jesus intersects our broken lives, our brokenness, our failed places that we find the answer to these deep needs, the desire to be known deeply, the desire to change thoroughly, 
I think it's Jesus that cures our monophobia, our fear of being solo and alone. It's Jesus that silences the voices that mock you in your future. You'll never be different. You'll always be the same. The reach from your past mistakes into your future. Jesus is the only thing that can cure that, and it's where he intersects with our life, as we're going to see today. Because I believe today, the text that we see will show us how thoughtful, how, how considerate our hero is for us. So look in John 1. Great text today. John 1, we're going to start in verse 35, where <clears throat> he calls his disciples. And this is what the word of the Lord says to us today. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist, by the way. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and then he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or about 4 p.m. in our time. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means rock, or Peter. Verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, and also we prophets wrote, the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly. And by the way, John's the only one that repeats truly. All the other gospel writers just say it once. He's underlining this. He's highlighting it. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay. Listen, we could, we could actually take this passage in several different directions. And certainly, if you've ever heard it preached before, you've probably heard this taught regarding like evangelism because we see some people connecting people to Jesus. That's, and that's a very real thing. You can teach that here and not mishandle that passage. I'm not going to do it today, though. I'd like to keep the headlights on Jesus, okay, in this passage. I'd like to do that. John's goal, if you remember what he says in the end of this book of John, is that we believe and that we have true life. We know as the church that true life is found when we fix our gaze and our fascination upon God's activity among man in the person of Jesus. And here we get to see some really cool activity. He does some things that are very interesting. I mean, what we see is two main things. He brings a new identity 
because he's changing a name. He's redefining Peter, is he not? He brings a new identity, and he brings new company because he's finding Nathaniel when Nathaniel thought he was alone, when he thought it was just him and the Lord. He found him. In other words, Jesus knows us thoroughly, and he changes us thoroughly. We see this is how he handles the people he calls to himself. Now, at face value, this doesn't seem like a very significant text. It doesn't even feel like it could ever turn into a significant sermon with significant application for all of us. But I want you to consider the enemy of your lives. There is an enemy who is insistent on stealing, killing, and destroying you. Right? So what he will do is he will try to get you to buy into lies. The lies that you will always be alone, you will never be known deeply, not even by your spouse. You'll never be understood. I mean really understood. The, the, the lie that you can never change. It'll always be the same old sins coming up, right? And we know this attack happens because of what we say to ourselves. How many times have you recited, at least in your mind, I'm always going to struggle with this sin. It's this one sin I can't seem to just can't get it out. I'm always going to be that person. I'm always going to be this mess, this, this hot mess all the time. Or no one's ever going to know me. I'm all, I just feel alone all the time. I don't feel like anyone considers me. I don't feel like anyone ever even thinks about me. No one cares about me. No one pursues me. No one looks for me. Just alone. It's interesting these lies that we recite as the enemy attacks us. I think this is why the gospel is so very, very good news for the broken. The gospel is good. And when I say the gospel, what I mean is it's God's good news for you and me, his message, his life-giving message of how he intervened into our declining mess, looking like us, living among us, dying, living again, at his dear cost for our benefit for our good and for his glory. God's good news of how he brings Jesus to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he brings you and me to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, this good news. Because I don't know if you're like me or not, but I look at passages like this, and I think of just humanity in general, and I tend to agree with the psalmist, Psalm 8-4. I think it's David. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who's the son of man that you care for him, right? I feel like that sometimes. And because I feel like that, it affects the way I see Jesus. I mean, translation for that verse is, God, why do you give a rip? <laughs> Seriously, why do you give a rip about me? Why do you even care? Why did you not just pull the plug on me a long time ago? I think we have a view of Jesus sometimes where whenever he handles us and moves us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, he's got these latex gloves on all the way up to his elbow, but then he puts on another set of gloves because that might not be enough, right? Kind of like when you're washing dishes at a Thanksgiving meal or something where you're really dressed up and you're hunched over the sink like this, trying not to get stuff and splashing back on you. And we feel like that's how Jesus washes us. I'll clean you, I'll move you from the grave to new life, but I don't want to have anything to do with your business. You know what I mean? Not going to consider us, not going to get involved with us, not going to get dirty with our dirt, but just kind of this. I'm just going to move you from here to here. But that's not how he handles us, is it? He's thoughtful and he's considerate. He knows 
everything. He knows the motives that are behind your motives, the ones you haven't even spotted yet, friend. He knows the fears underneath your fears, even underneath those fears, the ones you can't even put words to. He knows it. You're never alone. He doesn't just push you away and move you. He draws you close. Better than that, better than that. Whenever he moves us intimately, he changes us. He changes us forever. New creations, never to be the same again. Never the same broken old past. Our past officially loses its reach into the future. The mocking words that chase us down, they're muted because he changes us. He doesn't just leave us. You see, the gospel, the good news of God, has a central character in Jesus, our hero. But this hero is incredibly thoughtful. Incredibly thoughtful. Incredibly considerate. He interprets our thoughts. He knows us deeply even though creation never could. He does. We have proof of this. Proof of this is Peter. Peter's not the same in this passage, is he? He's changed. He's changed forever. I love this little passage in Revelation 2.17. I'm not even sure exactly all of what it means. I know there's a piece of it that I really love, though. Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay? Lots of commenting on this from different people. Lots of different views of what this could mean. I believe we have a new name when God rescues us. Now, I don't believe it's like, well, I want to be called, you know, MC Superstar. I don't like my name. I want to be be Kevin. I like Kevin's name. I I don't think it's that kind of a name. I think the white stone has a new name emblazoned on it. I think that name is Jesus. I think it's Jesus. I think that is the new identity we take on ourselves when we're buried and raised up again. We have this newness. I don't get tired of this passage, even though I see it everywhere. And even though I see it everywhere, I don't always believe it. And it's the passage that says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a bit hard to believe, isn't it? Come on. Do you feel new? I don't always feel so new. Do you act new? I don't always act so new. (laughs) Then what is so new? How can this be true? You see, you have a Holy Spirit in you that you did not have when you were spiritually dead. Your old creation, unable to change, unable to even see that you needed change. Unable to contend with your very real sin that was dragging you in a very difficult direction. God rescues us, regenerates us, and gives us as a gift the Holy Spirit that allows us to see our need to change, see his grace and what he did for our sin, and lead us in a good direction, a good place. We are new. We're new. We have a different name. You know, Peter, he probably had to reflect on his new name a billion times before he died. Because this guy, he lived his trash out loud for all to see, right? He's, he's on full display when you read these Gospels. You're like, wow, what a mess. I mean, when this guy goes down, he swings for the fence, you know? How many times do you think the enemy came to Peter and said, rock, huh? <laughs> rock? Come on, not a rock. 
I mean, are you even a Christian? Not that any of you have ever heard that line in your head before, right? right? Are you even a Christian? You just did that. It's the same thing you always do, he says to Peter. He says to us. It's the same thing you always do. It's because you're never going to change. You're going to be the same old person. You might stop that for a little bit, a week here, a month there, a few years, but it's going to come back. And when it comes back, it will show you that you haven't changed because you can't change. And God can't help you because he can't even see you. He doesn't even know what's going on. None of your friends do either. That's why you're doomed. It's the same boring, predictable trash he spends on us. You know he spends on Peter. But listen, if the enemy is right, then the Holy Spirit can't change us. If that is all true, then, then there was no way for the Holy Spirit to raise Jesus from the dead, and the whole gospel is a farce. For us to say, I can't change, is for us to say, I don't have the Holy Spirit. And if I did, I don't think he can do anything. I don't think God could really change me. I think I'm just stuck. But we have a living Jesus, which is proof that change does occur. It's proof that change happens in you and me. That our past doesn't have to be our future. That we have the person of the Holy Spirit mending, pushing, shaping, nurturing, breathing on our hearts at all times. It's how good God is to you and me. On top of being a God who changes us actively, we have a God who is considerate with us thoroughly. Proof of that is not only is Peter not the same, Nathaniel's not alone. Nathaniel's not alone in this text, if you notice that. I like how John Piper says it. He says, God finds us under the fig tree long before we find him. <laughs> Proof shows us this, right, in this text. You have in verse 47, you see Jesus seeing Nathanael when Nathanael was solitary and having some sort of a moment with God. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on. That is left out. But we do know that it was some sort of a special, spiritual, tender, meaningful moment, right? We know this because Nathanael pivoted rather quickly. He went from not really believing who this guy is and why he knows anything to declaring that he's the son of God and the king of Israel. That doesn't happen because Jesus said, hey, I just saw you hanging out under a fig tree with your buds. You're playing cornhole pretty good, by the way. You know, I like your form. And then Nathaniel goes, oh my gosh, you saw me? Well, then you must be the son of God. That doesn't happen. Nathaniel must have been in a place where he felt alone. Maybe he was crying out because that's where we do that a lot of times, right? When we're alone, maybe having a moment where he said, God, I just want you to see me. Do you see me? I just want you to see. Jesus says to him, I saw you. I saw you. You thought that moment that you were having with God was totally private, didn't you? Oh, no, 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 no. I know you thoroughly. I know you intimately. I consider you greatly. Calls him God after this. He also says something very interesting as he introduces him as he walks up on the scene, and that is that here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Here's a true Israelite, a true Jew, in whom there is no deceit. You catch in this passage, he might not have had any deceit, but he had a whole lot of prejudice, did he not? This is the same guy that said, what good can come from Nazareth? And I've read plenty on this and what this could mean. It is somewhere between total prejudice and racism all the way down to just like trash talk in another city, which we all like to do if we're honest, right? 
trash talk another city. I do it at Asheville all the time. If you've been here longer than three months, you've heard me throw a grenade over at Asheville, right? Because it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, it's Asheville. <laughs> you could smell it from here if you just step outside. The B.O. and the patchouli mixed in together kind of stings the nostrils. You see how easy that was? I just trash talked him. I didn't even think of that beforehand. I was just ready to go. It could have been somewhere in between that, trash talking another city like a tribal allegiance or all the way to racism. So he was wrong about Nazareth. Something good can come out of Nazareth, but at least he's not hypocritical. Might be a little wrong in how he views people, but he's not duplicitous of mind. I think Jesus is saying we can work with that. This guy is at least honest with how he's feeling, if anything. He's at least honest. And what he means by a true Jew is he's saying Nathaniel's a guy that could hear what I'm saying, compare it with the word of God, and make a good decision, which is what a good Jew was supposed to do at the time. How would he know this about Nathaniel? He knew him intimately. He considered him, thought about him knew what he was thinking when he was sleeping, knew what he was thinking in his tougher moments all the way up to his more victorious moments and everything in between. No stretch of the interior of Nathaniel's inner man went unexplored. All of it was laid bare for Jesus to see. If we were to apply this to our lives, this little part right here, it's easy for all of us to just go down the row and check off our beliefs. Like God sees everything. Well, I believe that God sees everything. Well, congratulations. I mean, I think that's probably what most people would say, even people that don't love Jesus. God sees everything. The little chipmunk that just fell off the tree, or I don't, they don't even climb trees, do they? Whatever it is that climbs trees, they fall off the tree, or this family's having a fight. God sees everything. But did you know that he sees you individually? Not just his people, I see my people, but he sees you, you down to the last millisecond, the, la the, the distance between two atoms and what composes you and even how you think he knows you thoroughly. This is good news. This is good news for you because it means you're never alone. For those of you who feel lonely, you're never alone. You're never misunderstood. You're totally understood. Never a victim of being discounted, not considered, not being pursued. You are the object of his heart and his desire. No longer do God's people have to crack all the relationships they're in to demand what only God can deliver, because this is what we do. This is what we do, especially when it comes to consideration. We demand everyone around us to consider us a bunch and think of us all the time. And we get mad when they don't do it, and it puts a schism in our relationship. And a lot of times, God's the only one that can deliver that for you, right? Have you met that person? Are you that person? Just, they didn't even say happy birthday to me. It's obviously on Facebook. Everyone knows it's my birthday. They didn't comment and say it's my birthday. They don't ever text unless I text them first, right? No one knows the trouble I'm going through. No one cares. No one sees anything. I'm so not considered. No one thinks about it. I mean, see how ugly that is? Self-pity? It's not just ugly. It's antithetical to the Christian life. Because what it says is, is when we say no one considers me, that God himself is not considerate of me. I need the world to be considerate of me. You must think of me all the time. Because I don't believe that God does. 
So we just start breaking relationships around us, getting bitter, because they didn't remember that thing, say that thing. They mishandled you in some way. I think some people in here right now are probably pretty raw because someone did not consider you on demand, didn't think of you. It's nice to be thought of too, isn't it? It's nice to be considered, to be, to be loved on that level. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying if you wilt in the absence thereof, that is not, they're a jerk problem. That's, you have a Jesus problem. That's where that is. So what Nathaniel says, and what we're about to find out another person in the Bible has said, is not only did I see you before you saw me, I'm going to do great things among you. I'm going to thoroughly change you and thoroughly be involved with you, even if you don't even see me doing it. We see this happen because he's actually, Jesus, in this passage, is nuancing an Old Testament text. Some of you caught it when we read it. The words ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Verse 51, that last verse, right? That's the dead giveaway. That's not just odd language. Jesus is pointing backwards. He's pointing all the way to Genesis 28. It's a fascinating passage. Jacob is on the run. Jacob's name means Israel, by the way. Jacob does this in 28, verse 11. It says, And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep because that's a comfortable night's sleep, isn't it? On a rock. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There it is, right there. That's your key phrase, on the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And that's talking about the church, by the way. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he says this very key phrase. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. That's a totally different sermon right there. Surely the Lord is here. I didn't even see it. It's busy under my own fig tree. I thought I was alone. The Lord is right there. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And that's why he names it Bethel later on. So Jacob, as a deceiver, born a deceiver, living a deceiver's life, stole a birthright and now his life is in danger, so he goes on the run. It is such a dire thing, such a dire moment, that he covers over 40 miles in this first day, if you do the math. That's booking it back then. That's moving. Finds himself in this rock-strewn valley, alone. No one knows the troubles he's seen, right? No one even likes him at this point. His brother wants to kill him. His mom is his only friend bad place when your mom is your only friend and you're sleeping on a big rock. But he has this vision, right? And what is, what is going on in this vision? God is encouraging him in this vision by saying, by saying, you will see activity in me. There's a new commerce, a new fluency between heaven and earth 
for the good of my people and for my glory. I'm going to do it for you. The promise is to you. You will see my activity. That's all he's saying. Do you notice as you look at verse 51 in our text today in the John text, do you notice there's no ladder in that text? No ladder. It's because the Son of Man replaces it. God has a new currency, a new fluency between heaven and earth. It is no longer angels marching up and down doing the bidding of the Creator. It is now Jesus Christ. His activity occurring through Jesus Christ. Him blessing mankind through Jesus Christ. Him active with his people through the person of Jesus Christ. The new Bethel, the new house of God. Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, are you amazed that I saw you when you thought you were alone? I've been doing that for a long time. Nathaniel, I've been seeing people alone for a long time, intimately knowing them. You will be amazed at what you see from here on out. You'll be shocked. I sound a lot like Jacob. I sound a lot like Nathaniel even. Surely God is here, and I just missed it. Surely God is in this place. I just missed it. I thought I was alone, discounted, not considered, not known, uninterpreted, just alone, my soul alone, people all around, and my soul is alone. Surely the gospel says he is here, and I missed it. This does some really cool things for us as we're in community and on mission. So before we shut this down, I'd love to just take a couple minutes, just one or two minutes, to talk to you about how this gospel changes us for the good of each other and then for the good of the city. Because we are in the, we're in the business of building missionaries. That's what the church ought to be doing a lot of times, building missionaries, equipping us, right? I notice that deep relationships with Jesus will always come before deep relationships with each other. We all want to have deep relationships with one another. We yearn for that. You could say you don't, but you know you're lying. You do. But you can't have it unless you have a deep relationship with Jesus Christ first, right? Because if you don't, then you're always dissatisfied with how thoroughly known you are. You're going to try to get it from the other person. You can't love that other person if you're busy using them or abusing them in order to get all of that, that, uh, that love, that consideration, that what can I do for you? I've been thinking about you all day. I've been texting you all if they're doing that, you can't, you can't love them wholly. Too busy using them. Too busy using them. Marriage is better when we are not reacting every single time our spouse forgot to say something. It, it, it's nice in our marriages to always be considerate and being five, ten steps ahead for the people. It's, that's nice. It's good. But listen, if you're married, if you're married, and you melt into a big puddle because they forgot something or didn't do something, you're blowing that thing up. Are you really, are you really satisfied with how deeply God considers you? Because if you are, it's nice when you get it, but it doesn't destroy you when you don't. See, I think whenever we repent today, as we sing, as we look at our own lives, as we see what God has done for us in response to what we have done to him, in that moment, some of us need to repent just for the bitterness we have. Many of you, you have a deep bitterness towards one or two people because they did not consider you. They dropped you. Very simply, they dropped you, right? You don't know how to do with, you just don't know how to deal with that. I would just say it's time to repent 
Turn away from the bitterness you have towards that person and the unbelief you have that God thought, thought of you that deeply. Even in that moment when you're praying that prayer of repentance, he is 10 steps ahead of you and knows your every bone, every fragment of your inner person. He's there. As we're on mission to this city, it's important to know that Knoxville feels alone. Knoxville feels unknown. People, we all do this, will affix themselves to groups or tribes, pockets of people that in some way, shape, or form say, you're welcome here, you're understood here. We're on the same page. Whether it's a bowling league all the way up to a gang. Is that not the primary fuel that glues gangs together. Come on. It's this idea that I've been in a broken home, I know poverty, I know how the system dropped me, or whatever is coming out of their mind, to have somebody else rehearse that same thing to them and say, I totally get you, man. I know you. I'm considering you. Effortlessly, I get you. You'll always be welcome here. We'll have a different loyalty. We'll be like family. We'll be better than family. Listen, there's a few times in my young life, had I heard that line, I probably would have bought it. I probably would have bought it. That is what's feeding this. It's what's driving it. It's this God-shaped basic need that only God can fill. I think the church, as I said earlier, I think the church is God's answer to this, obviously. Because the church is just a a smell, just a nuance of what heaven is supposed to be like right here on earth, where a deeper consideration could be made from one to another. You know what those gangs, okay, this is what gangs do not need. They do not need me to dress like I'm in a gang and talk like I'm in a gang. That's not what they need. Sure, they might show up and high-five me after the first service. They won't come back. This is what they need. They need a church that they see that is loyal beyond the loyalty that they're used to, that is centered around something else. Besides death and just loyalty for the sake of loyalty, what they need to see is that consideration, deep, thoughtful consideration comes from none other than one who created them and knows every fiber that makes them up. That's the only thing that could outcompete something as competitive as a gang. That's what Knoxville needs. But most of us don't know somebody in a gang, but we know people that attach themselves to groups where they are deeply known. They feel considered. A tribe. They are that person. They are a CrossFit person. They are a goth person. They are whatever person. Tribes where they feel understood, considered. They get me here. What is the tribe that your friends are attached to? The ones that are not here, nor are they in any church because they're not coming to church, right? They're not going to go to church. They're not going to run to Jesus. What is it they are attaching their lives to? Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you speak to it? Can you lead them to a place where they see that their codependence has gone astray? That they're never going to get that allegiance back. They're never going to get that. Even help them see where it's failed them already in the past. Can you spell that out for them? Here's the key. Can you envision them under a fig tree? And speak to them in such a way that they know, relaying them how the gospel and how Jesus of the gospel, our hero, sees them. Can you do that? You know, I was praying about this this morning, and God brought this up to my memory. I don't, I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner, but my first year in the ministry, my first year as just a young, green campus minister on a big, aggressive campus, 
I remember praying one day that God would just give me guidance as I'm talking to people that day. And I did that a lot, but this one day I bumped into a guy. And I can't explain it, and I don't have time to teach it or go into it, but I know that I know that I know that the Lord told me to relay something, imperfectly, sure, but to give them a sentence. Really, it was like a fragment of a sentence at that. But, it, but an image, something that I, I, I could say, I feel like God wanted me to tell you this. I might be totally off. I don't know you. I'm not crazy, I promise. I'm just an average guy like you. But I feel like God wanted you to know this. Here, there it is. And he melted, and he became a Christian right there. God sometimes says, I see you. I see you. Do you pray for prayers like that? That God would just do something, arrange a way, give you words, moments with people where you can say in their virtual fig tree moments, you thought you were alone. I feel like God wanted me to tell you this. I feel like the Bible says this to you. I was reading this passage today, and for some reason I thought of you. Because people love to be seen when, and considered when they feel all alone. By the way, ironically, that guy changed his name legally. Yes, God changes our names. He legally went through the trouble to change his name. I mean, no, he got it. He got it. I think secondly, and this is my last point, as we're on mission to Knoxville, I think it's important that we see that people can change. That people can change. That's hard to believe sometimes because of all the dirt and sediment and filth that's kind of caked on top, we think that they might change this, this little much. It's important that you understand that they could change into a totally different creation. It's important that you help them see that, that you spell it out for them, because they don't believe it. They don't believe it. Ask God to give you a view for what the better version of them looks like and then spell that out for them. Friend, I see you without addiction. I see a version of you where addiction is not barking at your heels every single day. I see a version of your marriage over here, just beautiful and life-giving. You guys aren't trying to make yourselves happy. You're trying to make the other one holy. I see a version of your, your mouth, your eyes, your money, your heart. I see a version of you that is totally different than today. You can change. Oh, yeah? Show me. Let's look at Peter. I mean, he was a mess wrapped in a disaster, this guy didn't know anything, right? I think some of us, as we repent, we need to repent of our unbelief. Our unbelief that we can change, sure, but our unbelief that others can change. They can smell that on you, by the way. When you look at somebody as if they're dirty and they'll always be dirty, the gospel's kind of shallow coming out of your mouth. Talk to them believing with excitement that they can change, never look the same again. How exciting is that? That's our job as missionaries, friends. That's our job, but we have to believe it first. So go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to finish this. I want to read a passage. We've been getting in the habit of doing this every week in the book of John. I would like to read a psalm to you and finish on this with what we have heard so far, and this is in the 139th Psalm, and I'm only going to read the first several verses to it. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He knows you, friends, and he is considerate, and he is in the business of changing us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm excited about this passage. I'm excited about your word to us. God, because I'm not done changing. I want to change, Lord. We want to change. We want your Holy Spirit to to turn us inside out, to make us never the same again. Lord, we all want tomorrow to be different than today is. And Father, we want you to cure our rampant and rabid monophobia, where we are scared of being alone, we're fearful we're alone. Lord, that we are just content. In a dark, cold room, we are content you are there. In a loud place, you are there. When we're in the middle of worry or warfare, you are there. You are there, Lord. You understand us. You care for us. You're always thinking, pursuing, loving, caring for us. God, we are so thankful. And it's from that place that we repent, God. We repent of being a people that demand everybody else be so considerate of us all the time and getting bitter when they're not and blowing up relationships because they didn't think of us as much as we thought of them and they're not meeting my needs anymore. Lord, we, we turn from that, not just for the bitterness in our hearts, but we turn from the fact that we believe that you're not good enough to meet those needs. Lord, we also turn from the belief that we just cannot change. Not because woe is me is just a dumb thing to say, but because it's unbelief that you have the ability to change. If I I think you can't change me, then how did you get me from dead to alive? Of course you can change us, Lord, but help our hearts see that. God, help us be good missionaries to this city. Help us be good missionaries to this city. Whether they don't look anything like us or they are the person next door, help us share with them, paint the picture of how thoughtfully considerate you are (laughs) with a smile on our face. Help us explain to them that they can change. Even them can change. Even with all their past and all their shame, they can change 
And even that, say it with a smile on our face because we know without a shadow of a doubt you've done it for us. You are good. And your ultimate consideration was that Jesus came for us. Oh, what is man that you would even consider us? Yet you did. Yet you did. We love you. We passionately praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke. Um,